You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 15th of June 2018 on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Andrew Muller on today's show. Well, steady on. It was only Saudi Arabia. Russia put five past obliging opposition as the 2018 World Cup gets properly underway. My guests, Sofia Ahmadi, Michaela Aitken and Fernando Augusto Pacheco will be discussing this and the day's other top stories, including Argentina takes a step towards legalising abortion. Will a leap forward follow? The apparent determination of Spain's new government to kick against Europe's growing inclination to pull up the drawbridge on migrants. And is half a million euros too much for a dinner service? even for feasts fit for kings, or at least presidents of France. That's all coming up on Midori House on Monocle 24 right now. Welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Monocle Sofia Armadi, Michaela Aitken and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Welcome all. The 2018 World Cup is now three games old. We have learned that Russia might not be as terrible as predicted, that Saudi Arabia are probably even worse, that Mo Salah's shoulder cannot heal fast enough where Egypt are concerned, that Uruguay have the look of one of those teams that might bore their way through to the semi-finals without anyone really noticing, and that the long odds on Iran or Morocco winning the thing were probably judicious calibrated, although as we go to air, Iran have beaten Morocco 1-0 with a Moroccan own goal in the fifth minute of injury time. Uh, condolences to all our uh, Moroccan listeners. Uh, Sophia, you're quite pleased about this, however. I'm very pleased. I'm very pleased. And it's still a goal, whether it was given to us well, by in, Morocco. In, indeed, they all count. Um, in, how excited are we about the World Cup in general? I will start with you, Michaela. Obviously, you, like me, are counting down the hours until Australia takes the field against France tomorrow morning, UK time. I don't think I can put into words just how excited I am. Um, <laughs> that is a complete lie. I don't follow it as fiercely as Fernando does, but that does not mean that I well, won't be at a pub watching a game when one is on that just so happens to be on when I'm in a pub and I'll watch it, sure. Um, no, but I'm very excited to watch Australia play tomorrow. Um, who knows if we'll win against France? Probably we will. We will yes. definitely win. Good. I, my, my, atti- my attitude is to approach this game with absolute boneheaded optimism right up until the point that it clearly becomes impossible that we're going to win the thing. How's that worked for you in the past? Badly, if mm. I'm honest. Um, I, I don't think this is going to be our year. I, I still think we were absolutely robbed in 2006. I'm capable of, of going on about this for some time. That was never a penalty. Uh, Fernando, are, are you? I know you like World Cups. <laughs> I do. and I, actually... I am disappointed that you are not today wearing your full Brazilian kit. Well, I'm saving this for next Friday, which Brazil is playing at 1pm uh, UK time, so I, I will be wearing I think it's my duty, you know, and, and I bought the official kit, of course, because I don't, I don't deal with fakes, you know. So, um, <laughs> and, and no, but honestly, I'm, I'm very excited. I think I feel like a child, you know. Every four years, it's a very special moment for me. It's like I'm on holiday. So even though I'm working, I kind of pretend there's no work, nothing's happening. There's just this magical event, you know, about sports and about countries, and and it's an excuse to meet friends. And I think growing up in Brazil as well, you have that culture honestly you know i was uh, working i think it was in the 2006 or 2002 and, and and you know and people they actually don't work they 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 stop to watch the games and 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 the whole kind everybody's in a better mood i mean 
if, if so if, if, if I translate if I translate this back into the Australian it's like the Melbourne Cup but it goes on for a month instead of five minutes exactly exactly okay. um, Fernando I understand that you and Michaela in particular at this table have very fixed opinions about the quality of the kits uh, at this World Cup Brazil are I'm sure as they always are will be splendidly turned out that is a it is a handsome outfit that Brazil wear but Michaela do you, do you have a particular favorite Australia obviously but other than I that I was a little bit disappointed in Australia's outfit if I'm honest I mean they never really pushed the boat out although sometimes they did for the Sydney Olympics I don't know what people were thinking they pushed the boat out and got reprimanded so heavily that I think every sporting team since has stuck to just plain gold but um people are very excited about the Nigerian football team's outfit they have looked splendid they their outfit is a little bit 90s which I'm I like I'm kind of vibing on that and then their travel track suits are this floral number which is super Gucci which is pretty cool um, Faye, what's your pick? Well, I think Nigeria is a great one. The only problem with Nigeria is that it's sold out. So if you are keen to buy it, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you ha- probably have to go to those websites and pay thousands and thousands. I mean, I have to say the Australian one, I, I kind of agree with you. It was a bit, there were some strange graphs on the on the sleeves, which... It looks uh, like a kid all accidentally squiggled all over them. Yes, I mean, n- not my favourite. In France, they are always very elegant and, uh, you know, beautiful navy. The Brazilian one, although, although it, did, it didn't change very much, they added an extra samba yellow uh, to the kit, which okay. I did notice comparing to my 2014 official kit as well. Uh, Sophia, do you have any, any fixed opinions on this subject? I mean, I haven't checked out the kits thoroughly. I will say, obviously, I know I know Iran's kit, and it is obviously very classic and sticking to very much its traditional flag colours. But then again, who needs a kit when you have a team as good-looking as Iran? We may not be the best, but <laughs> we definitely look the best well, on well, the pitch. I agree with Sophia on the, well, that one. Iran. Iran is, is getting our vote on this, is it? It's official. Hands down. Okay, fair enough. Uh, that said, at, you know, with one win from one game, Iran are probably technically equal favourites to win the World Cup at the moment, as of right now. I don't anticipate that lasting. Um, we, we should talk a bit about the more serious aspects of it, just so there isn't an audible grinding of gears before we get into the second item, which is actually a serious subject this evening. Um, I thought that the, the visual off-field signifier of yesterday, those very strange photos of Vladimir Putin uh, and Prince Mohammed bin Salman watching the game. I'm not really sure what I was supposed to think or feel about that. Was anybody else? It was a bit scary, actually, at times, you know. And uh, but, but to I, honest, kind of, I kind of got the idea they were betting the fates of entire countries on who scored the next goal. And, and it was a, a bad news for Putin in terms of leaders that have a- attended, you know, the opening ceremony. I mean, certainly some countries did go there, but for example, there was no Western European country. Uh, even in, from South America, I think only the Bolivian leader, and I believe the one uh, from Panama, attended. So it was, it, it was not as big as probably Putin was expecting. Uh, you know, but nevertheless, you know, South Saudi Arabia and Russia, they were playing, so of course their leaders were there. Uh, it was not entirely surprising as well. Okay, um, just before we move along off this, everybody, of course, has their own countries they will be cheering on in this World Cup. Does everybody have a second favourite team, other than your own? Um, well, I am going to side with um, Faye here and say I'm gunning for Brazil. That means you have to say Australian. <laughs> I, I, I love Australia. In fact, I, I date a partially Australian person. Well, so, the, well, you know, ex- well then th- that is your mind made up. Come on, Australia then, you know. Okay. Um, Sophia, after Iran? 
It would be Brazil as well for me. Thank you, guys. <laughs> okay, I'm just going to pick somebody more or less at random. Go Panama. Yes, um, I'll be happy with Panama as well. First time in the World Cup, like Iceland. I, I you mm. know. Oh God, have I just bought into, have, have I just bought into the plucky underdog thing? Yeah, yes, you have. You did. Okay, okay, you just did it. Okay, in that case, I'm, go <laughs> I'm going to go with an absolutely perverse fondness for Uruguay, who are just going to be insufferably boring and do absolutely nothing and getting to the semi-final without anybody noticing, unless Luis Suarez bites somebody. Uh, but let's move along uh, with that audible grinding of gears and look now at Argentina, a country which has taken a tentative step towards the legalization of abortion, a bill legalizing it in the first 14 weeks of pregnancy, having just squeaked through the lower house of parliament by a margin of four votes. It goes now to the Senate. President Maurizio Macri, almost as if he understands how liberal democracy is supposed to work, or something if only there was more of this, has stated while he is personally opposed to the reform, he will sign it if it passes both houses. If this does occur, it would see Argentina following Ireland as a Catholic country which has changed its attitudes dramatically. Um, Sophia, first of all, it's when people talk about global political trends, it's mostly people fretting about the kind of nativist conservative nationalism we're seeing in a lot of places. Is this part, I guess this and Ireland, part of a liberal pushback against that or is this just nothing to do with that and a whole other thing on its own? I, I wouldn't say it's nothing to do with that. I think um, Argentina were very heartened by what they saw in Ireland last month in, in, in May. Uh, and I do think this is more of a just a general a general pushback. I think it's sort of just joining this global trend that we are seeing at the moment, which is moving towards um, expanding legal grounds to allow um, all sort of affirming rights and especially here, the dignity of women um, in general. And I think yes, yesterday was a very, very historic vote for Argentina, often seen as sort of a pioneer in these kind of cases. Obviously, I think it was maybe back in 2010, Argentina was the first uh, country in Latin America as well to legalize gay marriage. Uh, so again, it was a very, very significant and obviously timely given what happened in Ireland last month uh, vote. Uh, the Irish one was, of course, by referendum uh, rather than parliament. Michaela, we are both citizens of a country which made a leap forward in terms of, uh, I guess, what you would think of as general social progress by referendum last year with the, the gay marriage plebiscite. Do you have a particular preference about how these things get done? I, my own preference is for parliament, by and large, to sort these things out. But is there... Is there kind of a power to it being a popular vote in the way that it was in Ireland, which is also, of course, how Ireland legalised gay marriage? I think there definitely is a power to hear what your population and your citizens believe in and what they want for the future of their country. Um, at the same time, referendums are a very expensive uh, exercise and one which should only come up when Parliament is not doing its job properly. And in the case of Australia going to a referendum in order to vote for, uh, to legalise gay marriage, it, it was disappointing that it happened in the first place. It was something that I think that should have been solved in Parliament. You know, as we're moving forward, representing the majority of the nation, people wanted to legalise. And that's what the Parliament should have, should have followed at the time. But if it does come to a head where Parliament isn't doing their job, then I do firmly believe in having a referendum. And I think that it can... It settle a debate that perhaps would ha continue to ongo in uh, in with politicians. And if I may agree with you, Andrew, I do think actually uh, going through Parliament 
it is better in a way because the first countries that approved gay marriage probably it were it was it was at a time that probably their own populations wouldn't have approved that. Uh, so of course, when it comes to Australia, which is you know quite quite a late one when it comes to gay marriage, of course you know they've seen that you know most of Europe have approved already. Some countries in South America, even South Africa, so probably they were inspired by that. But you know, I'm sure, for example, in Holland or Denmark, I, I'm not sure exactly which one was the f- the first one. I'm sure if they have voted there in the late 80s, probably they they, they would say no. Actually, we don't want gay marriage. So I think it's I I personally prefer uh, you know going through parliaments, but you know nothing against as well referendum as well. Uh, just to follow to, to go back to Argentina, Fernando, and I know Argentina and Brazil are different countries, but there there is a commonality or has been up to this point in South America um, where abortion is concerned. A statistic I found researching this earlier, currently across Latin America and the Caribbean, 3% of women have access to legal abortion. So that puts in context what a huge uh, lurch this is for Argentina. What is the background underpinning that? Is it just the Catholic heritage? Well, I don't think it's only the Catholic uh, you know, heritage. I think especially, for example, in Brazil, uh, in, in fact, Catholicism is going down and evangelical religions are, are rising. And in fact, they are even more conservative than Catholics. Uh, there was a research in Brazil, for example, if you just look at the Brazilian Catholics, they're more pro-abortion than the average uh, Brazilian considering all religions. Uh, so I think it's, 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 you know, it's all those factors. Uh, and UBM, if Argentina goes and approves this law at the Senate, it would be fantastic. You mentioned the 3%. If Argentina approves that, this number will go to 10%. And, and I'm so surprised because, you know, the country, the continent has done so well when it comes to gay marriage and other things. But abortion is such a controversial issue, even among center left parties, even among liberals. People are still afraid to say in public that they support that, even though a lot of women, they do uh, do illegal abortions. And it's, it's very sad because a lot of them actually they die. You know, they go to places which are not clean because it's illegal. Everything, you know, is uncovered. So I think it's a tremendous decision by Argentina. Well, that, that number of. Uh, obviously figures about the numbers of women in South America and the Caribbean who have had abortions is far higher than that 3% who have access to legal and therefore safe ones. Um, As Fernando points out, Sophia, it it is an incredibly difficult and emotive topic uh, and it is one of those ones which I myself am not entirely sure personally what I think about it. My general sense though is I think that it's probably something that men should shut up about to a large extent. Um, What strikes you as the reason that they won't? Um, well, well, I think, first of all, you have to look in terms of, for example, if we look at Argentina in particular, obviously, Faye reference, you know, we've got the Catholic Church in play here um, on the more traditional side of the argument. Um, and obviously, you've got Pope Francis at the helm there, but then who was obviously Argent- Argentine born. But then also in the opposition party, you have um, a majority of politicians, even as we know, President uh, Mauricio Macri as well, has come out saying that he is actually against um, the proposal. However, obviously, he has obliged and says if it does go through, he will sign it and has encouraged um, people within his party as well to sort of vote accordingly to what they believe. However, it is quite a significant message if technically your sort of leader in chief, if you will, has already stated that he himself is against it. Um, And if we do look at, of course, there have been uh, significant developments with growing numbers of of female members in in, in cabinets across South America, but at the same time, they are predominantly um, male-orientated. And because of that, if we 
do go through obviously the sort of uh, part the procedure of parliament and taking it through the necessary steps then naturally you're going to have uh, these male voices coming into play I think one thing which was very good about uh, Argentina and there was actually a lot of preparation work in this you know for months in advance they had a lot of people that were coming in to congress from journalists to actors to all over to speak about abortion in Argentina and to sort of present a lot of different cases so this wasn't I would say a, a rush job as such uh, which I think is is very good. And the actual debate itself in Congress, I think I read, took about 23 hours. So almost close to a full day sitting there uh, disputing this and, and taking all the different sides into account. OK, we're going to take a short break now. You're listening to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller, along with Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Sofia Armadi and Michaela Aiken. Coming up next, why is Spain's new government taking the liberal path on migration? <laughs> Climb aboard Monocle's June issue, where we take a ride through the latest in planes, trains and automobiles, drivers included, in our annual transport survey. But first we set sail in Spain's medical ship, with its crew of doctors and nurses looking to help anyone waylaid by choppy seas. From there we hit a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, until we touch down in Toowoomba, where one Aussie family is transforming the town with an international airport. Then it's on to the tour bus to see what life is like on the road with the band. Surprisingly homely if you're on a night train coach, followed by a quick stop to meet the journos on the front line of Brexit. Now it's time to get high with a whistle-stop tour of the new elevated parks, popping up in London, Copenhagen and São Paulo, inspired, of course, by New York's Highline. Then we pop corks at Verona's Vinitaly, head to the hills for a spot of camping with mountain wear brand Amundsen Sports and its handsome team, and drop in at Marseille's oldest hardware shop, Maison Empereur, to stock up on, well, pretty much anything and everything we need. Monocle's June issue is out now. Get your copy today or subscribe at monocle.com. Welcome back to Midori House with me, Andrew Muller. Still with me are Michaela Aitken, Fernando Augusto Bacheco and Sofia Armadi. And let's look now at Spain, the new government of which has been bucking prevailing opinion among European countries on dealing with migration. After accepting a rescue boat full of migrants, which Italy had refused to let land, Spain now says it will do, quote, everything possible, unquote, to remove the anti-migrant fences that separate Spain's territories of Ceuta and Melilla from the rest of Morocco, and which often furnish unflattering images of golfing tourists teeing off, watched by African migrants climbing the razor wire. Um, Michaela, first of all, the new interior minister, Fernando Grande Malasca, has said he will do everything possible, in quotes, and also, in quotes, one of my main priorities. Um, the language there is, it may have lost something in the translation, but nonetheless, he's, he's leaving himself a bit of wiggle room there, isn't he? He is, but it is quite interesting because... Um the fence, I mean, the fence was originally put into place in 2005 and then removed again in 2007. And then it was reinstated again in 2013. So there's always been this back and forward of Spain trying to decide whether or not they will have a fence in place and whether or not that will be a part of their immigration um, or their fight against migrants entering from their African border. But the his... Ability to go out and say again and again, and also to show us earlier in the week that he does value immigration and mi and migration is quite promising. Um, he didn't have to. I mean, this step has come just after what happened earlier in the week, in which um, was it three hundred and fifty or so? Uh, or six, sorry, six hundred and twenty-nine migrants were on board a ship 
And he said that after a row between um, Italy, he said, look, we'll, we'll go ahead and we will try and um, find a solution for these people. So it is promising to see that he is putting his money where his mouth is and showing other examples of going ahead with what he had planned. The difficulty is, though, uh, Sophia, what happens if Spain takes the fences down, which is which is what happened in 2007, uh, and then the border gets rushed by hundreds, if not thousands, of migrants, which prompts the political headache this always does, do you then have to put the fences back up again? I I honestly think we would see something along those lines of what Rajoy ended up doing back in 2013, as, as Michaela was describing. But again, I also do think, you know, it is a completely different administration. Now we have this new socialist government, like Michaela said, it's showing a very migrant-friendly uh, sort of initiative coming out. Um, obviously, Pedro Sanchez, who is uh, the head of the new socialist government as well, um, definitely showing a more welcoming stance on immigration. And obviously, uh, before previously committed um, during sort of general elections in 2016 to removing uh, this wire fence. So definitely keeping up with promises here. And also today it was just announced that Spain will be uh, bringing back free healthcare for undocumented migrants. So I think they're definitely making, like Michaela said, a lot of steps in the right direction. But at the same time, by removing this fence, uh, if they do not have a plan to sort of uh, justify or sort of level out uh, the procedure of having sort of an, an open an open border there will be a general chaos again and something will have to be will have to be done uh, Fernando, how much political room does Spain's unelected new government have here? Because what European governments have discovered time and time again in recent years, and this is this is not to say anything one way or the other about the rightness or wrongness uh, of migration. Uh, I'm a migrant myself um, and therefore am broadly in favour of it. But it's just that when there is a sense that it is not controlled, that it is not regulated, uh, people, the actual electorates, don't like like it. But Andrew, that, I have to say something very good about Spain when you compare to other countries in Europe. Not only only Pedro Sanchez, because even uh, during Mariano Rajoy's government, it's a very uh, it's a country which integrated well its immigrants. Let's remember that before, you know, of course, the crash in around 2008, they welcomed, I don't know exactly the number, but millions of South American immigrants, which were very easily integrated. There was not so many problems of racism. In fact, they don't have a very strong uh, far-right uh, uh, party. It'd be and interesting to see how long that lasts, well, though. It might last for a while, because, for example, if you look at Portugal as well, I think those both Iberian countries, they, they are enough. very well integrated with their old former colonies as well. In fact, Portugal even in 2015, they signed new laws actually uh, making it easier, especially from a Portuguese-speaking country, to move there. It's such a striking contest because when we think about Europe, people say, oh, in Scandinavia, they're so open refugees. But in fact, the refugees, sometimes they stay in very isolated ghettos. And and if you see countries like Denmark, they have so, they're so restrictive. It's almost inhumane in a way. So I think it's, it's, it's also good to see that side of Spain and Portugal. And it's difficult to say, perhaps, because they had a repressive uh, right-wing dictatorship and they perhaps they don't want to go back to that as well. But but, but it, it, it's good to see what they're doing right as well. So I don't think it's only Pedro Sanchez. I think it's been a little bit of a history thing in Spain the last years as well. OK, well, finally tonight, nothing about the French presidency is calculated to inculcate in its occupants a frugal humility. The job comes with its own palace. Nevertheless, a certain amount of rumpus has been raised in France by the news of an upgrade of the official crockery. 
Gallery. It was initially reported that a new service of 1,200 plates would cross, cost rather €50,000, which isn't cheap, but seemed tolerable in the circumstances. It has emerged, however, that the bill might be nearer to ten times that, or about €417 Euros per plate, if I've done the maths right. Um, Michaela, is this that big a deal? Shouldn't the official crockery at the LSE Palace have, you know, it, it should be pretty flash stuff, shouldn't it? I would think so. If I was, not that I ever would be, but if I was invited for a dinner there, I would expect you quite never, nice you, you plates. Never know. <laughs> well, I did a little bit of research and I found that actually the American government similarly also spends a, a lot of money and each president Every time some new a new president gets elected, they get to select their dinnerware. Well, actually, the wife or the first man, if that should ever happen, gets to select the dinnerware. So during um, George W. Bush, uh, during his presidency, they spent four hundred twenty-four thousand on their crockery. So it's within a similar ballpark, I think. So, Sophia, I mean, are you outraged by this? Do you think the president of France should be obliged to go down to Monoprix and look in the sale bin to sort of replenish the cutlery? Um, not particularly. I agree with Michaela. I think it is it is within reason, especially it, it is the Elysee Palace. Um, and he is technically the utmost representation of France. He's got to host all these big state dinners. Um, so it is um, expected. And it is something that's very much ingrained in French culture and has been since, you know, we go back to the 18th century. I think what's happened here is that this sort of announcement has been very much lost on the French public at the moment, um, given the fact that it comes at a time of sort of budgetary constraints. Macron's losing, losing quite a lot of popular support at the moment. We've seen um, the nation been struck with a, a series of rail strikes. Uh, and so I think there's been this sort of backlash because of that. And people are not sort of equating the numbers. And and yeah, so I, I don't disagree, but I think I can also see why it, because of timing, it's kind of not gone very well. See, I, I think the mistake they've made here, or the, the problem they're having here, is that the number of 500,000 euros, Fernando, it's one of those numbers people understand. And I, it, it puts me... In, I've, I've always thought that the, the best illustration of this was around the time of the, the 2008 financial crisis here in the UK. First, the government announced, we're going to spend X hundred billion pounds of your money to bail out a bunch of crooked and incompetent bankers. And people went, uh, uh, yeah, all right, fine. Uh, and that was at around the same time that the MP expenses scandal broke and which then some then people realized somebody spent 70 quid on a trouser press and tried to charge that to the taxpayer they went absolutely berserk because people understand i mean I, I'm, I'm not i'm not saying that i myself understand astronomical numbers i don't i don't you know if, if you say to me 495 billion versus five 500 billion it sounds like more or less the same amount of money but i understand what 70 pounds is no and you and you're right and for example this type of stories they can become very important i do think macron's not that unpopular that this story would destroy his presidency but you know if let's say if he would be a little bit more unpopular than now this this could be cause you know for revolt in the streets and of course this number came from a satirical magazine as well. so i don't think it's as expensive as that perhaps not 417 euros a plate but maybe let's say shall we say 300 euros <laughs> you know so much better <laughs> exactly i i do like a little bit of grandeur i have to say and and you know come on he's the president of france but yeah I, you have I, to be careful i mean it isn't it, it is a it's that difference isn't it about them being the head of state rather than the head of government i i i have myself set foot in the 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 house of government of a country i will not name which is also <laughs> a constitutional monarchy uh, and i was astonished by how how shabby and decrepit everything was and I, I i mentioned this to one of the people you know who was working there and they said yeah we 
know all this stuff needs upgrading, but upgrading this stuff to the standard it needs to be upgraded to would cost a fortune. And if we did that, then the newspapers would go absolutely berserk. So we just have to cope with it. Whereas if you spend X amount of money on the royal family, people just go, nah, they're the royal family. It is a weird one. I, I did want to ask each of you in turn, and I'll start with you, Sophia. What, what is actually the most expensive item of crockery that you personally own? I'm I'm not a very big cook. However, I do <laughs> have um, a wonderful um, Le Creuset sort of iron, cast iron cooking pot, which is very beautiful and red and stays... You're, you're basically stays Marie Antoinette. clean, yeah, because <laughs> I hardly use it. But no, I do have one. What do they go for? Is it, is it, a, it It's not the equivalent of spending 420 euros on a plate, is it? Not quite, but they no. are quite expensive. But as they say, it's an investment. And maybe this is what you know, <laughs> Macron is it saying is, It as is well. literally your pension pot. There you go. <laughs> oh, come on. That's, that's, that's gold. Is this thing working, etc. cetera? Uh, Michaela. I would love to say that I've got some beautiful set at home, but I've got IKEA um, crockery at home. And I, do, I did buy myself once a Scotland and Bangs glass, just a singular glass, which I think I spent about 20 euros on. I was pretty proud of that. Okay, Fernando, coming to the end of the show, don't disappoint us. I have uh, heavy cutlery, which was was a gift actually from my father. I do like heavy cutlery. I like when I'm eating my food to struggle a bit to, to carry the fork and knife. I think I once spent about 15 Australian dollars on a Gough Whitlam coffee mug at the Parliament House shop in Canberra. That's... that's Money <laughs> well spent. I, 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 well, absolutely. Uh, that shameful admission does bring us to the end of today's show. Fernando Augusto Pacheco, Michaela Aitken and Sophia Amadi. thank you very much for joining us at Midori House. It was produced by Fernando Reduce, Research, Reduced, Researched by Lamichi Okamoto. Our studio manager was David Stevens. Music next at 1900. It's the menu with Marcus Hippie. I'm back with more on the day's main stories on the daily at 2200. Midori House returns on Monday at 1800 London time. I'm Andrew Muller. Have a fantastic weekend. Thank you for listening. Thank you.